All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, and we pray now that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you'd have your way with us, and that you'd guide us and lead us as only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 39. When you're there, say there. Good. That's downright uniform. So, um, last week we read, anybody want to guess? Ezekiel 38. Now, if you do the math and add up the number of verses in 38, it uh, gives you 23 of them, and the number of verses in 39 gives you 29 of them, that would be 52. That would have been a lot last week. So number one, we didn't go through it all last week, but these two chapters somewhat go together, okay? Um, but I really felt like, honestly, in the context of what we talked about last week, it would be too much to do it last week and this week. And so this week, I thought there'd be another thing that we could do that might be kind of fun, okay? And that is, I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are a good number of homeschool students in the room, right? I won't ask you to raise your hand because you're not used to that kind of stuff. Okay, but there are a good number of homeschool students in the room, or former homeschool students in the room, and I thought it might be, and, and my kids were homeschooled, okay, and so every now and then, in our home, we, like, we'll feel the need to give them a piece of, like, what they missed out on. Does that make sense? Like, you know, you don't have to show them the Boy George videos, but sometimes you do need to teach them about, like, how basketball works and stuff like that. Is that fair? Well, one of the, is that fair? Yeah. yeah. My deprived kids right now, they're, they're saying, bring it on, Dad. Like, tell me what I missed, right? And so we do that every now and then. We go through those exercises. And thank God for YouTube. There's some videos. You can see what pop culture was like in the 80s. And, and then, you know what they usually say? Oh, thanks, Dad. We realized we, in fact, didn't miss out on much. But anyway, one of the things that you miss out on um, uh, that's uh, kind of a hallmark of public school, at least when I grew up, is what I call the September factor, right? Now, back when school was school and, you know, men were men and stuff like that, school started when? The day after Labor Day. So, so you got to reset your calendar. And so in September, like September of the eighth grade, what did we learn in September of the eighth grade? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me back up. Anybody that went to public school? What did we learn in September of the eighth grade? Everything that was in the seventh grade, right? What did we learn in September of the fourth grade? Everything that was in the third grade, right? Because our brains went silent, went dormant for three months, right? Because when men were men, our brains went dormant for three months. And we had to, it took a month to sort of do a reset. Is that fair? So chapter 39, a lot of what we're going to do, I mean, we're, we, you feel like I'm filling time right now, don't you? But what I want to do is I want to review it. These chapters deserve two weeks of discussion. Is that fair? These chapters are highly significant. And so um, 
So it's worthy of review. It's worthy of review in case you weren't here last week or you weren't here th- this week and you were last week. And so it's not completely uh, review, but a lot of it is, and I think it's worth kind of hammering it in our brains um, and then pick up the rest of chapter 39. Fair enough? So Ezekiel is speaking to a group of uh, captives in Babylon. They've been captured from Judah, Jerusalem, right? Because of the idolatry of the nation, God was punishing the nation of Judah. And part of what is going on is he's bringing them captive into Babylon. They're captive in Babylon and Ezekiel is preaching to them all this while that Jeremiah is preaching to the Jews back in Jerusalem. This is somewhere between 597, which is when Ezekiel was captured, and 586 B.C., Okay, so you got sort of that window of time, and we see a prophetic timeline. We've painted this timeline over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to do it again. Fair enough? After three weeks, it's going to sink in our brains. Okay, so you got the time there between 597 and 586 BC. We'll call it Ezekiel's contemporaries. Okay, and then we have a future time from their, from their standpoint, and that is they're going to be captive for 70 years in Babylon, and then after that time, they're going to go back to Jerusalem and regain, re, reclaim the homeland. And that happens under the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, because the Persians are going to overtake the Babylonians. They're going to inherit all the, con- you know, all the conquered nations, one of whom is the nation of Judah, and they're going to release them back to, uh, to Jerusalem. As I'm thinking of it, these are the kind of things that make us look at prophecy the way we do, and that is very specifically. And I like, I like specifically, uh, and we'll read about this in a few months, but as Daniel, in I believe chapter 9, is, says, he said, I was reading the words of Jeremiah the prophet, and it said that we're going to be here for 70 years. J- Daniel's in Babylon. And it says we're going to be here for 70 years. And you know what? The 70 years is about up because Daniel's an old man by this time. The 70 years is about up, and it's time for us to go back. Daniel interpreted that 70 years as very literal. And so if Daniel interprets prophecy literally, I think wherever we can, we should interpret prophecy literally. Beyond the fact that when Jesus came the first time, he fulfilled prophecy literally. We'll talk about that at Christmas. Okay, so 70 years, they go back to uh, Jerusalem, and then after that we see, you know, uh, the time of Christ, uh, you know, there's, there's a gap there that we don't know a whole lot of detail about, but the time of Christ, by the time Jesus shows up, the Romans have occupied uh, uh, Judah, Jerusalem, the whole region there in the Roman Empire, and the Jews are just basically their subjects, right? Uh, fast forward a little bit further, in 70 A.D., the Romans completely conquer and wipe uh, Judaism off the map, if you will, in a sense. Uh, they wipe out Jerusalem, the city of uh, the nation of Judah, uh, Israel, all that conquered area, and uh, the nation of Israel ceases to exist. And it looks like it's going to cease to exist forever, except until 1948, May the something. I forget the date. May 18th, 1948, right? Out of Israel is a nation. And I hope I never tire of saying 
get your head around how miraculous that is. That, the, that a nation, a culture, a people group would cease to exist from 70 AD until 1948. And so to be fair, there are a lot of people that interpret prophecy sort of allegorically, and it must mean this, and the nation of Israel really, it's not really talking about the nation of Israel, it's talking about the church and stuff like that. And there's a lot of that kind of theology, right? And frankly, a lot of that theology was uh, birthed with the reformers, okay? Well, I'm going to cut them a little slack. Picture your Martin Luther, and it's, when was he? Smart people, when was he? 1600, 1500, a while back, right? Picture your Martin Luther, it's 1500. Israel hasn't existed for 1430 years. And you're reading prophecy about the nation of Israel, right? You're going to be very tempted to say, it's got to mean something else than the nation of Israel. And so we can act pompous and smart and, you know, like we got tons of faith because we can look back and say, oh yeah, there is such a thing as a nation of Israel. But to be fair, let's be fair to the reformers, right? Uh, but anyway, so thankfully we have hindsight and we can see that the nation of Israel does in fact exist and it causes us to go back and, oh, you know what? When Paul says that the church hasn't replaced Israel, I guess that means that the church hasn't replaced Israel. And so we interpret things as literally as possible. So 1948, the nation becomes a nation. Um, what happens, what's the next event on the prophetic timeline, I believe, is the rapture of the church, okay? In the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, every Christian on planet earth is gone, right? Jesus said, hey, two people are going to be out in the field, you know, working with their grain or whatever, and all of a sudden, one's going to be there and one's going to be gone, right? That's the reality. That's the truth. So that's the rapture of the church. That, that's followed by a period of tribulation, a seven-year tribulation period. At the end of that time, Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, he sets foot on planet Earth and in what's called the Battle of Armageddon. That's one of the, one of the three battles, the prophetic battles that we talked about last week. Battle of Armageddon is when uh, Jesus comes back on Earth and... Uh, basically overcomes all the world leaders and, and kingdoms and establishes his, 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 his kingdom, which will reign for a thousand years during a time that, uh, that Satan is bound and uh, Jesus reigns for a thousand years. This is in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And then at the end of that thousand year uh, reign, Satan's released for a brief while and then there's another battle and then that sets the stage for final uh, eternity with some in heaven and some in hell. Fair enough? That's the biblical timeline. And, you know, obviously different people interpret it different ways. To me, that's how I see it. And where I get to that point is that I interpret Scripture as literally as, I, as possible, particularly as, it, particularly as it relates to uh, the nation of Israel and particularly because of the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecy very literally the first time when he came. So I think he's going to do it very literally the second time when he comes. Fair enough? No rocket science yet? Okay. Except for when did Martin Luther live? That was a little over my head. But, so I see, uh, if we can review from chapter 38. Chapter 38 talked about, there's a leader uh, of Russia, of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, which is really, uh, we interpret, uh, the leader's name is Gog. Uh, we interpret to be the leader of Russia, 
uh, probably parts of Ukraine and maybe extending into Georgia. Uh, we read this in verses 1 through 4. This leader is going to bring this coalition of nations into Israel. When uh, It says, out of the far north. And we talked about this last week. If you look at Jerusalem and you draw a line completely straight up and down north and south and draw it east by, I think, 2.4 degrees longitude, you run right through the city of Moscow. So in my mind, I said this last week, in my mind, I always thought of Russia as like everything way east, right? But when the Bible talks about north, Moscow is pretty much due north of Israel, of Jerusalem. And so uh, there's going to be a Russian leader, brings uh, an army uh, out of the far north to, a land, uh, to Israel when they are at great peace. There's, the word peace is mentioned, I believe, three times in, um, in chapter 38. Uh, the Russians are going to be joined by, check this out, Persia, Ethiopia, or some, some of your versions say Cush, Libya, Gomer and Togarma. So these are uh, most commonly interpreted Persia. We know to be Iran. Iran was called Persia for many years. Uh, Ethiopia or Kush, uh, most people say is the region of Sudan. Libya is Libya. And Gomer and Togarma are modern day Turkey. So if you're drawing a map, you got Russia from the north. You've, and again, I'm going to reverse the map for you. Got to do a reset. This is east, right? Yeah. You got Russia in the north. You've got Iran in the east. You've got Sudan from the south. And you've got Turkey. I mean, here's the Mediterranean Sea. So you got Turkey and Libya, north, north, south, east, and west coming into the nation of Israel in what would be overwhelming likelihood of, of Israel's defeat at a time when they're at great peace, okay? And so, many people speculate as to why the United States might not be mentioned. There's no reference anywhere in prophetic scripture that the United States is a factor in, in these end times events. We read about kings, we read about nations, we read about people groups, and there's nothing anywhere that resembles the United States. So why is that? Well, what if this battle happens immediately after the rapture of the church? What would happen to America if the church, if every Christian in, in the world were suddenly gone? Just think about that. Right? Remember when, remember when Y2K was going to happen? Right? Right? The computers are going to do something weird, and so that means that electric companies are going to do something weird, and that means the world's going to fall apart. Okay? You all remember that? You're, I'm getting some blank looks. Is anybody 22 years old? Okay. So that was going to happen, right? And so our brains can kind of, but how much more so if I say every Christian is gone? Right? Just think about the economic impact of that. Think about the social impact of that. Think about the political impact of that. How strong do you think America would be if every Christian were gone? I think America would be a pretty weak nation and they'd have their own things to deal with. 
right, than to get involved in some kind of European or Middle Eastern skirmish, right? So the United States is not, is not mentioned. So could it be that there's the rapture of the church? And interest, interestingly, uh, we know from Revelation and elsewhere that the Antichrist will arise after the rapture of the church. And the Antichrist is going to be a very interesting person. He's going to be a person that will be a great, very smooth world reuniter, world come together, world peacemaker. He's going to unite everybody and everything's going to be good. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to make a covenant with the Jewish people. And uh, he's going to make a covenant of peace. He's going to promise them to rebuild their temple. And then three and a half years into this covenant, halfway through the tribulation period, uh, he's going to basically go into that temple. He's going to violate the temple in the Holy of Holies. He's going to let them basically know who he is, who his real colors are, and the Jewish people are going to feel betrayed. And we're going to see this distinction then with the Jewish people feeling betrayed, but, but yet coming to repentance, and the rest of the Gentile world basically scoffing at God for the rest of the, of the tribulation period. And so I believe that's why when we read in chapter 38 that Ezekiel, or that um, Russia and its allies are coming upon Israel when they're in a time of peace, I think peace is probably during that covenant of peace brought on by the Antichrist. Fair enough? Clear as mud? Good. Now, when they come, God's going to fight this army. He's going to fight them with a great earthquake in verse 19, right? We talked about the Jordan Valley Rift. It's a, it's a long uh, fault line that runs along basically north to south all along the nation of Israel. That's kind of curious. Uh, we're going to see that Gog's soldiers will fight against each other, verse 21. We're going to see pestilence and bloodshed, verse 22. Let me just say this. Prior to two years ago, when we read the word pestilence, it's kind of like Martin Luther reading about the nation of Israel, right? Prior to two years ago, when we read the word pestilence, in my mind, I think, you know, we're a, we're a modern, you know, we've, we've got modern health care. What can pestilence, what does pestilence mean? That's like, that's like old school stuff, right? That's like, that's like third world stuff. That's not, that's not, you know, that's ancient time stuff. That's not us. That's not now. I think the pestilence of the last two years has taught us, if nothing else, it should teach us to be a little bit humble about our abilities to uh, gather our collective wisdom and to uh, hold off a worldwide illness. There's a, I could say more about that, but I won't. Pestilence and bloodshed, verse 22. Flooding rain, great hailstones, and brimstone, and fire, verse 22. And so these nations are going to come against Israel, and they're going to be defeated. Okay? And so then he picks up in chapter 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you, bringing you up from the far north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So he's just reviewing the, the, the scene. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. And so whatever weapons they have, 
are going to be worthless because they're going to literally fall out of their hands. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you the birds, I will give you to birds of prey and every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Now we mentioned uh, in chapter 37 when we talked about the dry bones. Remember there was the valley of dry bones, and God said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh Lord, you know. We talked about, you know, in the ancient world, and particularly in Jewish culture, in the ancient world, like the manner of, I mean, everybody dies, okay, but the manner of burial and memorial really, really, really mattered. And I think maybe even more than our culture. In our culture, you know, there's a sense that which we don't fully appreciate this. That, you know, we kind of think when you're dead, you're dead. And, you know, we have memories and we have stuff like that. But I think it's very important. And, and bear with me, everybody's got different opinions about this. But I think for a lot of people, a good funeral is a very healthy thing. It's, it can be honoring to the Lord. It can be honoring to that person. It can be, on, it can be comforting to the family. And so just the, the way somebody, somebody's death is dealt with is not an afterthought, I think. Does that make sense? Is that, I know that's a little bit fuzzy, but... or not a universal opinion, but anyway, suffice it to say that being, that having your body like scattered on the field and, you know, mountains falling on you and then the birds like cleaning you up, we're going to call that disrespectful. We're going to call that less than honoring of, of you as a person. Does that make sense? I mean, does anybody want your, no, you don't, never mind, right? So, this army is going to be eaten by birds of prey and by the beasts of the field. Some of them. Some of them are going to be buried. We're going to read about that in a minute. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, there's going to be this battle in Israel. But God says, not only in Israel, but, you know, back up in, uh, in Magog, uh, you know, in those areas... Uh, the areas that we're talking about where these people came from and, and in the coastlands, nobody knows exactly what the coastlands mean, but in these other areas, uh, I'm going to send fire there as well. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people, Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. And so make no mistake about it. There is a day, there is a day that God is talking about. And the day will come that all the world will look back and say, this is the day that God was talking about. Now, that seems intuitively obvious to us, but the point is, God is real, God is specific, God's judgment is real, God's mercy is real. God's sovereignty is real, and God says, you know, there aren't really, you know, there's no, there's no accidents in the, in the historical scheme of things. There's no accidents in God's sovereignty. He said, I'm going to make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, 
and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations, not just Israel, then the nations shall know that I'm the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And it is coming, and it shall be done. This is the day of which I have spoken. He's very specific. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and spears, and they'll make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillaged them, says the Lord God. Now you have to give a little bit of freedom. Uh, I know I said we're going to interpret literally whenever we can, but if, if Ezekiel in 597 B.C. had said, you know what, the fighter jets, they're going to burn them, right? Then the readers would have said, the what? Right? They didn't have a word for fighter jets, right? And so whatever weapons that this arm, these, these armies bring into Israel, the Jewish people are going to burn them, set them on fire, and burn them for seven years years. So that will go through probably the tribulation period and perhaps even beyond, that there's going to be this fire of weapons in the nation of Israel. Now think about that for a second. Do weapons have value? They do now. Will weapons have value then? Why would you burn a weapon? You ever think about that? Why would you spend seven years burning a pile of weapons? Could it be that you got a different set of weapons? You got fire and brimstone and earthquakes, right? If I got earthquakes, do I need guns? No. No. If I got fire and brimstone, I don't need guns. I don't need fighter jets. I just have the Lord. Right? So they won't need. I think there's going to be such an awareness amongst the people of Israel, God's people. There's going to be such an awareness that, wow, God took care of this thing for us, that we don't even need their stinking weapons. You think about all that, you know, all you read about, like who's selling arms to who in the world stage today, and, you know, these guys are selling weapons to these guys and so we should be worried about their alliance and these guys won't sell to these guys and you know all that goes on for you know tons of money and here we're going to be burning weapons for seven years i think that's very significant the jewish people are going to realize that god is on their side and they don't need any weapons It'll come to pass, verse 11, in that day, that I'll give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it'll, be, it'll obstruct travelers because they will, there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. So people are going to stop and say, wow, that's where Gog is. Therefore, they'll call it the valley of Haman Gog. And so Haman Gog means like horde of Gog or the multitude of Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them, in order to cleanse the land. Now, you know what I think seven months means? How, you know what I think how we interpret that? What do you think seven months means? Anybody? Seven months, good. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will, be, they will gain renown 
for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. So the bodies that didn't get picked up by the birds and the beasts, right, that we read about at the beginning of this chapter, we're going to have people all over the nation of Israel who have regular day jobs, right, it says who are regularly employed, they're going to be set apart. They're going to be given sort of a sabbatical, if you will, because they need so many people in the nation of Israel to bury the dead. And so they're going to do this. They're going to go through and they're going to have search parties to cleanse the ground and to bury the dead. And at the end of seven months, they'll make a search and the search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set it up, set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamon Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus, they shall cleanse the land. So, for seven months, they're going to be burying dead bodies. And people are going to quit their jobs or put their jobs on pause uh, to be able to do that. And so that'll be a bunch of the bodies. There'll be search parties. Um, so you get the idea. Lots of dead people who stood against God and His people. Is this pleasant? Not really. Is it reality? Yeah, it is. Do we do ourselves a favor by ignoring this stuff? No. I was telling somebody earlier. There's a piece of the body of Christ that would like for us all to think, you know, all you got to do is say yes to Jesus and all your problems just go away. Right? Your stocks go up. Your relationships go up. Right? Your health goes up. Everything's good, right? My, uh, well, okay, my kids. They always have a thing with like Christian um, movies, right? Christian movies. How, does it, how do they end? Happy, right? Right? Facing the giants, no disrespect. I love what those guys do. I hope I'm not... Well, I did it. <laughs> I love what those guys do, right? But who's going to win the championship in the Facing a Giants movie? The Christians, right? It, I mean, truth is, some Christian teams lose the game, right? Some Christian team, some well-intended, doesn't mean they're sin in their life of the quarterback, lose the game. Right? Sometimes in life, we have challenge. And I would do you, a, I believe, a horrible disservice to stand up here and present something like, man, if you just have a little more faith, everything's going to be awesome. Yeah. Like me. Yeah. Pie in the sky, by and by, till you die. How's that go? Something like that? Pie in the sky, by and by, till you die. Everything's good. Peace and love. Everything's happy. Is that life? No. Life is muddy. And we need to know that God is there through it. Right? And God will judge, unfortunately, regrettably, God will judge those who spend their entire lives on planet Earth rejecting Him and spitting in His face. That's the reality. So when Gog 
Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and his buddies from Iran, Sudan, Libya, and Turkey, all descend upon Israel because they're going to pick off the nation of God and, uh, and all of that, God's going to deal with them. And it's going, to take, it's going to be very messy. It's going to take seven months to bury them. Verse 17. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. This is literally a message to the birds and the beasts. A great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. That's just sober. That's just very sober. He goes on, verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed. How many nations are going to see God's judgment, which he's executed? All of them. All the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel, <clears throat> interestingly, shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And so... I believe through the tribulation period, there's going to be a distinction. There's going to be a great revival amongst the Jews. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists. It goes through the, you know, 12,000 from each tribe. There's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists going throughout the world, bringing people to, to Jesus, right? There's going to be a great revival amongst the Jewish people. God is going to deal with the Jewish people. Uh, in a very healthy way during what are some otherwise very challenging times. On the other hand, the Gentile nations, when he says, all the nations shall see my judgment, the Gentile nations, many of whom uh, will, I mean, some will, be, will receive the Lord, but many will scoff at him. Revelation chapter 9, after lots of tribulation, after many of the judgments have been poured out. Revelation chapter 9 verse 20 and 21 says this, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. There's going to be a, there's going to be a world of people Again, in the midst of it, the Jewish people are going to be um, great, great revival amongst the Jewish people. But amongst the Gentile people, there's going to be some that will be saved, but there will be a great number of them that will see this incredible judgment that will be obviously a judgment from the Lord. And they're going to say, I'm going to keep on sinning no matter what. Yeah. Now, is that conceivable in what we know to be human nature? Very much so. Very much so. Human pride is a powerful thing. Human pride can be very illogical at times. 
Human pride can say, you know what? If I walk off the edge of this stage and break my leg, it's like I could do that and then somehow not get around my head that that's a consequence of walking off the edge. Does that make sense? Human pride can make me say, I'm going to, I don't know, do something stupid, and it causes this consequence, and we say, well, that wasn't caused by me doing something stupid, right? This judgment didn't come because of my murders or sorceries or sexual immorality or theft. We need to be careful to remain humble before the Lord in our minds and in our hearts. These things speak specifically of future events, but they also speak specifically to the issues of our heart today. And we need to be very, very aware of that. So it says, The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Verse 23, the Gentiles shall know the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. And so keep in mind, from God's perspective, God's outside of time and space, right? So in a sense, it's a little bit, we can lose it a little bit, but God kind of in a sense, God comes back to the review of Jewish history because, and he's, and he's making a point that there are many mockers all the way through Jewish history. For example, the Jews go off to Babylon, right? And the mockers of the world will say, well, see, God couldn't protect his people. You see how it kind of flips? You can spin anything. So, God sends his people off to Babylon, and the people, the mockers of the world, they say, yep, see, God couldn't protect his people. God couldn't spare his people. And what God's saying here is, now, after all these end times events come to pass, when they spend seven months burying dead bodies uh, of people that were opposed to God, then the Gentiles shall know that, you know what, when Israel went into captivity, it wasn't because... I wasn't able to deliver them. It was because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. God was fully capable of protecting his people all along. God is fully, protect, fully capable of protecting us today. God is fully capable of blessing us. But God does discipline us at times, right? And so he's just, he's just clarifying here that any difficulty that came to the Jewish people wasn't because of his character. It was because of their unfaithfulness. Therefore, verse 25, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. He's speaking now to the, um, to the present tense people. Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name after they've borne my, their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which 
they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid, when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' hands, enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. And so we see oftentimes in the scripture, there's these near fulfillments and far fulfillments, right? God says, I'm going to bring my people back. Well, that happened after 70 years in Babylon. He brought the people back. But even in that, did they see like full restoration? Was it their land? No, it was the Persians' land, right? It wasn't like, it was kind of a partial fulfillment, right? And then he's going to bring the people back in 1948, right? But is everything that we've read about fulfilled as of 1948? Are the people dwelling there safely and securely today? No. So there's a partial fulfillment 70 years after the Babylonian captivity, and there's another slightly more partial fulfillment in 1948, and then there's a complete fulfillment in the millennial kingdom at the end of the tribulation when God restores the Jewish people, he establishes his kingdom, and he is in control, and the world knows it. Right? Will that be cool? So, we're somewhere between 1948 and the rapture of the church. Is that cool? That's very cool. And along this eternal timeline, we see God is in control of everything. I said it last week, I'll say it again. If I weren't a Christian, then I'd look around and I'd say, you know, the safety of America depends on every other world leader not dropping a nuclear bomb on America. Do you trust what's his name in North Korea? Like when he just kind of fires missiles just to sort of test them, right? Do you think that, like, is it, is it, we can say, well, he wouldn't do that to us, right? Do we say that? He wouldn't do that to us. We can, we can count on him not doing that, right? Mr. Putin, he'll never do that to us, right? Leader of Iran, whatever his name is, he wouldn't do that to us, would he? All these other nations, they wouldn't do it to us. We're America. We're safe and secure, right? Give me a break. How about this? Our own, ability, our own nation's ability to not implode on itself, right? What did Abraham Lincoln say about a house divided against itself? Right? If we're not Christians, that's all we got to stand on. I was talking to Nate about this this morning, and well, since I've already basically offended everybody. He said, well, that's why so-and-so wants to establish life on Mars. And I'm like, that's crazy, but it's consistent. Right? It's crazy, but it's consistent. Right? 
Okay, I got A. God is sovereign. B. I'm going to trust the world leaders to carry us into the next generation with safety and security based on their integrity and their, and their wisdom and their collective ability to get along and make us all one big happy family that sings kumbaya together. Right? That's B. Or C, you know what? I think I need another planet. C is more consistent than B. C is more logical than B, but we say, like, are you kidding me? Really? I mean, you can take your brain. It's like rolling down the hill, right? How about this? How about God's in control? And if God's in control of Gog, of the land of Magog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, if God's in control of him, if God's in control of all these events on the world stage, could it be that God cares about me? Is that possible? It's very possible. And could it be that, yeah, there's lots of stuff in life. And again, I'm not, I would, I would never want to try to sell you a, 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 a religion that is void of all challenges because my Bible doesn't read like that. But I will tell you this, God is faithful. God is so faithful. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is there. God's there through the easy parts. God's there through the prosperous parts. God's there in sickness and in health. God's there in richer and in poorer. God's there for us. And along the way, we get to look forward to the, to the rapture of the church. And if I look at the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I think, wow, you know, there's going to be a time when Russia and Iran come together. Well, that's pretty weird. It's going to be after the nation of Israel is reborn. Well, that's pretty weird. And God's going to bring together a bunch of nations that all, we now know all... Uh, are uh, Islamic groups that hate Israel. That's pretty weird. And God's going to fight back with an earthquake. Oh, by the way, there's a fault line right, right along the battlefield. That's pretty weird. Or else God's in control and there's nothing weird about it. Right? Is God good? Yeah. Is God very specific? Yes. Does God take care of us? Absolutely. Could the rapture happen tomorrow? It could. It could. It very much could. And each day goes on is a day closer. Okay? Let's not be like the Thessalonians who all quit our jobs and sit around and look up in the sky and do nothing in the meantime. Right? Let's be, let's be diligent. Right? Because if the rapture happens tomorrow, guess what? That's gonna, that means that there are people that need to hear the gospel between now and then. And so we need to be very, uh, very faithful to live accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are 
so specific that you're in control of these things, you're in control of our lives, that you could come back any moment. And Lord, the more things unfold, the more imminent it seems. And so Lord, we should be encouraged, we should be comforted as you tell the Thessalonians. We should eagerly await your return. We should be well informed. We should be people who spread your, spread your word. And we should be people who are very aware of your sovereignty in our lives. And so, Lord, we're thankful for it. We're thankful that you are in charge of this world and we are not. We're thankful that you are in charge of this world and our world leaders are not. And so, Lord, help us just to be reminded of that, not only in our minds, but in our hearts today and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week. And if the rapture doesn't happen before Wednesday, we'll see you then.